All right, there we go. We are live now. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain. I'm here with Dr. Extraordinaire, uh, the love doctor. He's also known as uh, Dr. Kevin Wakasey, who is going to, uh, well, talk to us quite a bit about coronavirus, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, you know, because I've had some people on who have been like, uh, incipient doom is upon us, um, rev up your zombie chainsaws, uh, we're, we're going into the apocalypse. And uh, I also wanted to get another perspective as well. And uh, as I am a bit of a pinball that bounces between experts in these areas, I wanted to bring the doctor on to talk about coronavirus and to also get your questions uh, about uh, what might be going on in, in your life uh, about these areas and questions that you might have about risk factors and preparedness and, you know, how often, how long is it going to be until you're eyeing your hamsters with a pitchfork and a bag of ketchup? <laughs> so uh, thanks, uh, Dr. Casey, for coming on today. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I don't think I'll be able to get that visual out of my mind before the show's over. <laughs> and and okay. now I'm just hungry. Let's go. So <laughs> Let's rock. <laughs> all right. So uh, we're just uh, letting the room fill up here. And why don't you tell me uh, a little bit about your history with uh, coronavirus and, and what you've been seeing uh, as an ER doc with uh, multi-decades of experience, what's been going on, uh, at least, or maybe, maybe what you've heard about. And just a reminder, of course, none of this is any kind of medical advice. This is two, just two guys jawboning about uh, the biggest history tsunami to hit in our lifetime since the turn right. of this century. So uh, what's been your progress in this area? Well, so, yeah, unlike President Trump, who does apparently, according to the mainstream media, give out medical advice by telling people that chloroquine is okay in fish tank cleaner, I think it was. Uh, yeah, then none of this shall be construed as medical advice, folks, please. Uh, but um, I am uh, an emergency physician, and I work in a small town hospital in central Texas where the population is a little less than 20,000 for the entire county. So the particular hospital where I work, we have had a couple of coronavirus cases show up in the past couple of weeks. Uh, one of those came through the hospital emergency department, and um, she was put on quarantine and is doing well as far as I know. But other than that, I haven't really seen a whole lot of it where I am. Uh, but we are taking precautions, and we should get into that. Uh, well, I'll tell you right now that what has happened is you hear all this hype about the hospitals are going to be overwhelmed and in certain areas they are i mean there's no question they're going to be overwhelmed and they are being overwhelmed but uh in you know central texas uh the hospital has taken such precautions that it's it's kind of a um, it's difficult to get into the hospital now uh it's uh you have to go through a screening process and and answer a questionnaire and wear a mask etc and um I, I do want to dive into that a little deeper later on if we may and i want to get into that right away but um, I have some reservations about what we're telling patients uh, and what we're telling people to do uh, to shelter in place and to stay at home. I guess that's what my, this whole thing is about, is my reservations about this, what I call coronavirus panic-demic of 2020. I think, I think the technical term is plandemic. Uh, but, um, <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah. The, numbers, yeah. the numbers that were coming out of <clears throat> the mainstream organizations early on were you know, our noughts of between four and five, the reproductive rates of four, five, mm -hmm. and six. I even saw eight as high uh, at one mm -hmm. point, and mortality rates 3.3, 3.4% compared mm -hmm. to 0.1% for the annual flu. So you, well, I'll link the video below, but you did a breakdown of some of these numbers that I think is well worth letting our audience know about, because mm -hmm. it does put things in a bit of a different perspective. 
Well, thank you. I hope people can get through the weeds and that there was a lot of statistics. And let me say, I'm not an, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm an emergency physician and I ain't a statistician either. I mean, uh, I think I remember square roots being important in statistics or something like that, but uh, I can't remember if I got a D or a D minus in uh, statistics in college. But anyway, you know, when coronavirus, uh, and by the way, this is not the only coronavirus. This is COVID-19 we're talking about. That is one of several members of the coronavirus family. This happens to be a new virus. That's why they call it novel. Novel means new. And um, it's something that we've apparently never seen before. Virologists have never seen this before. We can get into this a little bit later, too, whether this thing was actually manufactured as a weapon or, or tweaked with in that Wuhan laboratory. Uh, or whether this is just something that naturally occurred and made its way into humans, you know, I don't know that we'll ever know the answer to that. I strongly agree with your suspicion that this thing is a product of the Wuhan laboratory that somehow got out into the population. But um, when I started seeing this about COVID-19 back a couple of months ago when it first hit the news, I was pretty concerned, the uh, the numbers coming out of China, you know, and I, I guess I was naive. I kind of trusted those numbers, but I understand now that we can't really trust what China's putting out. I, I get that after watching your stuff. Thank you. Well, it's, it's a tragic, uh, it's <clears throat> a tragic cliche. Of course, when you think about Asians being good at math, it is a little bit of that, you know, we all have a couple <laughs> right. of the odd stereotypes floating around in our brain. And uh, right, yeah, right, that happens. Right. Yeah. So the bottom line, yeah, I mean, coronaviruses or COVID-19, when it started occurring a couple months ago, I, I have to say I was never wigged out about it because these things happen. I mean, we come across these viruses all the time uh, and that's going to happen in the future. As I point out in my video, this is inevitable. This is the predictable emergence of a new virus because these viruses mutate. They change. They're, they're nothing but little pieces of DNA or RNA. And these are the very bottom. This is the ones and zeros that make up computer code. DNA and RNA are the genetic components that make up all life. Now, viruses aren't technically alive, but they are very nasty in that they, they change all the time. They mutate. And um, so when this thing came around, I just was kind of like, okay, here we go again. This is going to be another Ebola or another West Nile or a, a Zika virus. That's my favorite one, Zika. Uh, but um, the bottom line with that is that when coronavirus came out or when COVID-19 came out, I was, I was watching it very carefully and watching your stuff that you put out and very concerning. You know, obviously, this is a new thing. We haven't seen this before. What's it going to do in the population? But now two months later... I have to take a sober look at this. And um, one of the things that really tweaked my interest in this is, as you often say in your program, Steph, um, if the media is not talking about it, then you should be looking at it, right? And I totally agree with that. Uh, but there's a corollary to that. If the media is telling you not to do something, you probably ought to be looking at doing that and seeing what you come up with, especially when it's a mental exercise, like comparing coronavirus to the flu. And when the media, when I saw them over and over again shrieking uh, hysterically, histrionically, that you can't compare a coronavirus to the flu, I was like, well, why can't I? And why are you telling me I can't? It made me very curious very quickly. And then I, I started looking at these the statistics, and I, I saw an article in the Gateway Pundit about a week and a half ago, I guess it was, that slammed the head of the World Health Organization, the Ethiopian politician doctor. He's not a physician. I believe doctor. his technical term is hand, uh, China's hand puppet, if, if I remember correctly. <laughs> right. That's what it would seem, right, from what we now know. Uh, Tedros, I, I can't even begin to pronounce his last name. And no offense to him, but 
Uh, he deserves a tribe, and I'm not going to massacre it. But Dr. Tedros, as I call him in my video, uh, this guy just rather complacently stated in a March, I think it was March 7th meeting of the WHO, the World Health Organization, which is this supposedly respectable body, you know, and world experts, uh, hey, they're the they're the WHO, right? Who are we to argue with the WHO? They're the World Health Organization, not the other guys. <laughs> and um, I'm like, you know, I'm looking at this and I read this article and they absolutely correctly 100% slammed him because he he compared, as I say in my video, what he did was statistically compare apples to onions. He compared the coronavirus, what's called the case fatality rate, which is the, it's the measure of how lethal this virus is. He compared that from, from two points of data, confirmed cases and confirmed deaths. He compared that to influenza, but he did a little, uh, you know, one, two, uh, keep your eye on the birdie type thing. He compared the coronavirus confirmed cases to confirmed deaths to the estimated number of deaths versus the estimated number of cases for influenza. Now, on the surface, it's not a bad idea to do that comparison, just generally speaking, because we don't know the actual numbers of deaths and actual numbers of, of, of cases of influenza. It's too high to count. This, this virus infects hundreds of millions of people around the globe every year. In the U.S. alone, the CDC so far this season estimates that there's anywhere from, I think it was 38 million to 59 million cases of influenza. They have no idea how many there really were. It's all estimated. Well, if you're going to compare that rate, that case fatality rate, to the confirmed data, the hard data that you have on coronavirus, and you come up with this crazy number that coronavirus is hundreds of times more lethal than the flu, based upon what he said, that it kills 3.4% of those that it infects, versus the flu kills less than 1% of those that it infects. Well, that's a that's a 300 time uh, average, 300 times greater. That's very scary, right? And that's what set off the global panic-demic. Maybe it was a pandemic. I'm sorry, maybe. if it's 0.1 to, th to 3, I, I got 30 in my head. Oh, is it 30? Oh, oh, okay, sorry, sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry you're, to be an uh, annoying arts guy. Hey, look, a history degree well, rise to the rescue, but... Uh, yeah, there got... you go. You, you, you crushed it when you said we were good at math. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's 30 times more lethal than the flu. That's still a very scary number. Well, I looked at that, I read this article in the Gateway Pundit, and I was like, oh my gosh, man, this guy... Of all people, now he's not a physician, but he is a PhD. He's got to have something on his shoulders worth talking about. I mean, he must know when he's the head of the World Health Organization. Who fed him this data? Who gave him this as the mouthpiece to speak out loud to the universe? Because it's totally wrong. It's totally wrong. And I can't help but think, you know, in my conspiracy theorist mind, that this was propaganda. This was, this was a plant. This was something that was put out there to make people panic, uh, the panic-demic. It really enraged me when I saw this. Um, and so I, I decided to do this video and, and really do some comparisons of the actual numbers. So when I did this, I was shocked because it's estimated that about 80% of these COVID-19 cases just aren't detected. You know why? Because like every other coronavirus out there, they cause the cold, they cause common colds. And so it's estimated that in 80% of people who come down with this virus, they never seek medical attention. They don't get tested. Voila. There you go. There you have it. We have a, a you know, a, a missed opportunity to catch this and, and create and get a larger number of confirmed cases versus confirmed deaths. 
Well, when you do some math on that, and you you take the confirmed number of deaths and multiply it times five because you know eighty percent, and start doing these statistics, you really quickly get down to where the case fatality rate of coronavirus or COVID nineteen. Depending on which statistics you're looking at worldwide, the latest one I calculated for my video was 0.89%. In other words, less than 1% of people who come down with COVID-19 will die from it. Well, if you look at the estimated number of flu cases, it's about 0.1%. Now, that's still, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, 0.1 to 0.9. That's a nine times greater uh, chance of dying from the flu, from COVID-19 than you have from the flu. But it's nowhere near as deadly as they were putting out there. It's nowhere near as scary. Right. So, okay, so, so hang on. Yeah. So I, let me sort of get, I get the big view of we're that. We're getting in the I, weeds. <laughs> yeah, no, I get, I get the big view of that. And I, I definitely want to sort of sort this one out. So one of the issues I have, because we have a rolling scenario here, right? So COVID-19 is kind of new. And so you're just not going to have the kind of historical data, you know, like the flu is something that's, you know, I guess, fairly well tracked or fairly well understood. It's been with us as long as we've, you know, been down from the trees and and, uh, hairless butts and so on. But (laughs) this being so new, the relationship between infections and mortality is a little more complex. So a lot of people who get the flu they don't go to the hospital, they don't get tested, right. you know, they just lie mm-hmm. and, and hold their stomach on a couch for three days and then uh, and sure. then get up. Whereas here, I think a lot of people who are doing, or who, who get these kinds of symptoms, they probably are going to, to the hospital. So I think right. that you're going to get a much higher detection rate for, sure. uh, for COVID-19 than you would obviously for the flu as a whole. And if that's the case, then going to the estimated number of the flu as a multiple of the people who are actually detected of the flu compared to the there is no real estimated number i think that's very accurate with regards to covid-19 because it's such a new deal right. and and nobody really knows yet so i think that i'm guessing that's sort of their thinking behind that methodology is like well we don't know sure. we've got no data no historical data that we can look at with regards to COVID. So we can't, you know, do the flu thing totally. But, you know, best we can do is say, okay, yeah, well, who's been right. tested positive and who's died? Right. And, and but keep in mind, we have no idea of the true number of people who died from COVID-19 either. Uh, that's a confirmed death. And I have to say this, that uh, I read in the news the other day where 500 people in Iran, over 500 people in Iran, uh, what did they do? They drank methanol. They drank wood alcohol, which is very poisonous, folks. Don't do that. Uh, don't drink wood alcohol. It's bad for you. Uh, that's and, medical and advice we're comfortable them. with, right? We can, yeah, that's medical we can handle advice. that. Stand by. Yeah, they, they drank, apparently, the news is they drank wood, alcohol, methanol, and it killed them. So my question, Steph, is, are they going to get lumped in as coronavirus deaths? I don't know. Uh, they're certainly uh, uh, related to uh, COVID-19. That's where they were drinking this stuff. They were afraid of COVID-19. But uh, yeah, these and in, in the video, I, I bring out the, the old quote, there are lies, damned lies and statistics. And uh, that's where we get in the weeds. That's where we get lost in the shuffle. Take into account also that, that what the politicians and the media are constantly com- uh, griping about is we don't have enough tests. We, can't, we don't have enough tests. We can't test for this COVID-19. I read uh, an article the other day where some governor of a state, uh, it was a leftist, of course. I can't remember which state it was, but he said, I want to have enough tests to test everybody in my state. And I'm like, good. That's for today. Now, what about tomorrow? 
I mean, are you saying that nobody can get this next week? Well, I mean, this this whole testing scheme that they're running on, uh, I am a firm believer in uh, testing people who are symptomatic, not testing general populations. Epidemiologically, you want to do that. You want to find out the prevalence of the disease, and that would give you a much better estimate of the true case fatality rate. But the reality is we'll never know what the true case fatality rate is. But I think this is being hyped. And so um, what really got me down this bandwagon was I started looking at the response. Okay. And, and when people tell you that you can't compare coronavirus to the flu, uh, oh, yes, you can. And what to me is important about that is not equating these diseases. They're two separate diseases. They cause uh, deaths at two separate rates. I'll, I'll admit, I'll stipulate that coronavirus or COVID-19 is deadlier than the flu. There's no question in my mind. But it's how, de how much deadlier than the flu is it? And I don't think that that is proportional to the response that we're seeing. The government shut down, the government grabbed for power, the uh Wait, erosion. sorry, the government shut down would be okay. Uh, no, no, I mean, the government, with that. government uh, shutting mandated, down everything else yeah, not so good. Excuse me. Yeah, the government mandated shutdown of businesses. And I bring up in my video how interesting it is that they're closing restaurants but leaving drive throughs open. Well, what's up with that? I mean, when you, if you're going to shut down a society to stop the spread of a virus, shut it down. Never mind, you know, that, that, that would, that's unconstitutional, really, uh, in the U.S. But, you know, these half-assed measures that they're taking to close certain businesses, certain states are allowing alcohol sales and marijuana sales in California. Other states are shutting down alcohol sales. I mean, what? But Anheuser-Busch or whatever that company's name is now is giving away beer for three months or something like that to people who adopt a dog. I mean, it's it's nuts, this response. And, and I want to say this before I forget, too, is if you ever needed proof that the government is corrupt, inept, and totally incapable of solving a major problem, look around, folks. You got it. It's right here, right now. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, I, I, anybody who retains their faith in experts after this is uh, is part of the cult of expertise that has characterized right. the life since the priests fell from grace. So, right. Okay. Myself so, included. So, folks. Yeah. So a couple other points here. Um, the one thing also, of course, that is driving up the death rate, so to speak, is that everybody who dies after being diagnosed with COVID-19 is, I believe, assumed to have died from COVID-19. Now, whether that's a straw that breaks, you know, right. the diabetic obese person's camel's back, so to speak, whether it is directly causal or just the last push into the grave, is that right. unusual? Does it, does it, like, that seems odd to me that they wouldn't look at comorbidity and say, okay, well, which is the biggest demon in the room that took down this person? Let me say this. Um, as medical records and the push, for, and I, don't, I'm, I do have a point to this. I'm going to go off track a little bit. But as medical records have gotten more and more complicated, especially with the advent of electronic health records and these revisions to the ICD, the International Classification of Diseases, this, this is crazy now. When I go to fill out someone's chart in the emergency department, in the ER, and I come to diagnose them, I can't just put down there for sore throat or what's called pharyngitis. I, I, I mean, it's very rare that I can do that these days. There are all kinds of, of modifiers. There's all kinds of information you can put on there. I mean, Steph, truly, there are um, diagnoses, official diagnoses for found dead on railroad tracks. There's another one found dead next to railroad track. I, I'm not kidding. These are real deal diagnoses. So when you get to that level of detail- I feel like we're detail, just about to enter a Roadrunner cartoon, but all right. <laughs> When you get to dead from TNT blowing up too early, when you get to that level of detail in making a diagnosis, uh, you know, sometimes I just throw up my hands and say, what the fuck? 
I mean, I, I just diagnose them with something that comes up because, and I'll, I'll admit that, that it's virtually impossible sometimes for me to pick through. It's going to take me 10 minutes to go through and find what what I believe their diagnosis to be. So sometimes physicians have to fudge it nowadays, given this extreme, extreme specificity we have. That being said, um, there was a 17-year-old young man in California who was thought to be the first uh, U.S. adolescent, the child under the age of 18, to die from COVID-19. Then I read a report after I filmed my video. In my video, I said he may have died from COVID-19. Then I read a report, and this kid was sick. He had significant comorbidities. I'm not sure what they were. And bless him. Bless his soul, by the way. But, you know, the bottom line is that he, now the questioning whether or not he died with it or died from it, and there's significant question as to which it is, uh, we may never know. We we may genuinely never know. So I think there's a fair amount of that, too, that if someone dies with coronavirus, it's like prostate cancer in men. Most men don't die from prostate cancer. They die with prostate cancer. There are some men who die from prostate cancer, but uh, statistically, that's not many. Uh, but the same thing can apply, could possibly apply to COVID-19. How many of these are dying from pneumonic or pneumonia caused by COVID-19? I don't have those numbers. I don't know that they're being published, but that would be a very interesting statistic versus someone who has, let's say, a heart attack and they test them because I guarantee you they're testing everybody who dies these days and they have a heart attack. Oh, well, they had COVID-19. Well, did that contribute to their heart attack? I'm not sure. So that's a fudge factor, too, we have to take into account. Yes. I mean, you take a silly example of somebody with coronavirus falls down the stairs at the hospital, dies of a concussion, but they say COVID. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's right. a sort of extreme example, but okay. So, or so drinks methanol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, okay, here's, here's the big challenge as well for me. Okay. So just looking at the uh, latest numbers, uh, this is the um, Johns, Hop Johns Hopkins University map. We got total confirmed at 784. It still looks like it's going up fairly exponentially these days, but anyway. Mm -hmm. So here's, here's the thing, right? So to break this out for me, brother, because this gets my jimmies in a twist. Okay, total recovered, 165,288. Yay, right? right? Total right, yeah. deaths, 37,638. Now that right. is a that is a very bad ratio. We've got tw almost 23% uh, of uh, death versus recovery. So when we're talking, you know, less than 1% to close to 23%, uh, that's, I think that's the kind of spread where people don't know what the hell to think at this point. Well, to me, the more suspicious number is, I, I looked at it this morning. What did you say it was 784? I think it was 770 when I looked at it. Yeah, 784, 314 at the moment, okay. most in US, Italy, Spain. China has locked out of the coronavirus that they created. But anyway, uh, yeah, so, um, but it's the total recovered versus the total deaths, which is, you know, 20, right. close to 23% uh, of uh, the ratio. I would say define recovered. What do you mean by recovered? Because now I just read an article before we went on air talking about how uh, people are having relapses. People are, are, you know, this virus doesn't necessarily go away. I don't know if it stays in the body like some viruses stay in the body forever. Chickenpox virus stays in the body forever. Herpes, the gift that keeps on giving, stays there forever. Chickenpox is a herpes virus. But aside from that, uh, I don't know if this thing sticks around or not and can cause mischief later on. Like, you know, the chickenpox virus can cause shingles later on. Uh, so right. we don't know if this thing's going to stick around or not. Maybe it was engineered to. Uh, if if, if uh, Paul Cottrell is right and it was engineered, uh, bioengineered. So the bottom, or I guess what I'm trying to say is that the bigger spread to me is that difference between the confirmed cases and recovery rate. That's a half a million, uh, 180, what'd you say? 180,000 versus 74? Uh, yeah, sorry. I, I think I just, uh, I just, <clears throat> did, I history mastered the math here. 
Um, so uh, because I divided total deaths into total recovered, uh, which is not uh, not, yeah, particularly, that's, not particularly valid. Yeah, uh, sorry yeah, about that. I, uh, right, I'm right. back. I, I had I had my my eighth grade math teacher like waving. <laughs> uh, uh, I won't give her even her name. She may still be teaching for all I know, although she was pretty ancient back then. But uh, yeah, sorry that that is not that is not the correct ratio, and uh, right, I just right, realized right. that. So you want to do total recovered plus total deaths, and then ratio of total deaths. So. I got like 5.4% or something like that, whatever it is, right? So yeah, when I ran the numbers this morning, it was, uh, I did it, um, I did it in the US. And the number that I came up with was in the US, I think there was 2572 deaths versus I can't remember the, the top number, uh, the confirmed cases in the US. I did this this morning, and I memorized it. And now I've forgotten it. the case fatality rate, which is the lethality of the virus was around uh well i can tell you it was uh three percent it was three point something percent but if you multiply that if you if you carry it out again to the estimated number of cases do some just generic math that number goes way 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 down uh to something that's again comparable to the flu um it's still bad that it's still worse than the flu it's still more lethal than the flu but it is not something that's out there eating people left and right and melting them. And this is where I really question the government's response. We're, I, I will say this. I'm not certain what the numbers are. I'm not certain whether this virus was man-made or whether it was natural. I'm not certain about much, except I am certain that we are not being told the whole story by the government and certainly by the media. I'm not sure the media is being told the whole story. We are not being told what's really going on because there has to be a reason behind this hyped up hyperdrive uh, panic demic uh, quarantines, closing schools, etc. The if you compare coronavirus to the flu, the COVID nineteen to the flu, and you compare the reaction, that's where it really gets. You know, hey man. You know, I was going to mention this too. Um, in cancer, as you're well aware, Steph, chemotherapy is something that kills cancer cells. Well, guess what it also does? It kills normal cells. Those drugs are toxic to normal cells. We haven't perfected it yet so that only the cancer cells get destroyed. So when you're undergoing chemotherapy, I mean, my goodness, you have to be careful. You have to dose it correctly. You have to base it on a lot of different variables so that you don't kill the person who has the cancer, who has the tumor. Uh, yes, You're I do remember the mentioning tumor. that. Yeah, you you know that very well, um, and I'm sorry you do. But in in this case, we have a saying in medicine: is the cure worth? Is the cure worse than the disease? And that's my real question: is it worth killing the best economy that we've had in ever in the U.S.? Uh, is it worth doing this for a virus that? You know, just from what I've been told, from what I see, from the simple math that I can do, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a threat. And and really, if I could carry this on and just say that my biggest problem with this coronavirus panic-demic of 2020 is not the coronavirus panic-demic of 2020. It's what happens the next time a new virus comes around. What's going to happen then? What if the flu mutates into the swine flu again or into this uh, H1N1 or whatever that was, the really bad one that was killing lots of people? What are we going to do? Are we going to shut it down? It's going to become a regular occurrence. You know, in, in Latin American countries, they have what's called siesta. And every afternoon they go to sleep. They close up shop. They board up the windows. They go home and sleep for a couple hours and then come back and open late. Are we going to do that every mid-November through mid-February for the flu? I don't know. This is a very, very high bar they've set indeed for something that I, don't, I just don't think deserves it.
Yeah. So um, just to recover my math credentials here, um, <laughs> yeah, I added the um, the dead to the recovered, and then did a ratio of the dead to the recovered. We got eighteen point five percent of the totals uh, of the totals of dying and recovered. Eighteen point five percent. Well. Yeah, eighteen point. But again, six. Uh, the recovery thing—you could say that um, there are seven hundred eighty-four thousand people in recovery because they haven't died from it. So that's right. That's right. I don't know that that's a valid statistic. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I don't know that that's something I would put any stock and faith in. I mean, you, you, again, there's lies, damned lies, and statistics in baseball. No, no, but come on, look, look, look. With regards to the flu, <clears throat> there's no way you'd see those numbers, and that's what I mean because it's a rolling situation. We just yeah. don't have. We we haven't we haven't gone through the bulge and the decline. Right. Well, so true, so true, that, true. that's the big challenge. Like you'd never say, OK, well, there's, you know, 200,000 odd people who had the flu. And of those 200,000 odd, 37,000 and change died. Like there would never be that situation. I mean, even the Spanish flu wouldn't be that bad. So that's the challenge, because, of course, the people who dragged themselves up to the hospital early, we assume, are the sickest. The people who are getting hit right. earliest are the sickest. Uh, and uh, so we don't know where we are in the in the role, right, in the in right, the true. bell curve. True. And, but, you know, when it comes to the flu, let's let's take the worst case scenario for the U.S. that uh, 50, I think it was 55,000 people die in a given year. That's the estimate for this year. Uh, but 59 million people have it, which means that 58,945,000 people recovered from the flu. So, um, yeah, that's that, that, that the 55,000 compared to that is nothing. You're right. But we just don't have the information regarding uh, COVID-19. We don't have everything in yet. And, you know, the, the ultimate thing for me is I know about the millions of cell phones that have gone missing in China. That's quite concerning, maybe. And the crematoria that we're going 24-7, that's pretty concerning stuff, if it's true. Um, <clears throat> and it could indicate a death rate far, far higher than what the China. I mean, that could, that could indicate a um, truly global emergency. If that's the case. Yeah. And I mean, to, to contrast that to yeah. uh, Canada's, uh, um, somebody just posted these numbers here. Uh, as of 9.45 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, total cases 6,081, total death 67. Therefore, death rate equals 1.1%. Right. So that's, uh, we, we don't yeah. know. We don't know. So, we just have so, a, yeah. so that's the big question that I have, Dr. Wakasey, is why is there this Old Testament style plague locus <laughs> end of the world panic coming out of things. Now I've heard good arguments as to why. I mean, what do I know? They seem like good arguments to me. Again, right, I like right, you. Right. I'm not an epidemiologist, but there are these really, really good arguments, which is you know, well, this thing could be engineered, in which case its right. lethality is going to be pretty long. Well, you know, it's going to race through the population pretty harsh, and right. uh, the problem, of flatten course, the curve. yeah, the flattening curve stuff. Yeah. That yeah. the overwhelmingness. I, I certainly have been receiving. And, you know, this is not a scientific study, and it's not even possible to verify. And I'll bring up one of these emails in a couple of minutes. But I have been getting a lot of emails from people saying, we're not even close to ready. You know, like I had a conversation with a nurse last night. She said 25% of the nurses had got infected, 20 25%, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm getting other um, uh, emails from people saying, we don't have any masks. Uh, we are, uh, you know, the masks well, haven't been fitted. Yeah. They're supposed to be every year. Like, we are way away from being prepared. And so that's my sort of big concern that uh, if this thing does race through the population and there is a bulge to the point where you can't get enough ventilators or 
you know, it's funny because everyone talks about ventilators, but the people to operate the ventilators aren't exactly a dime a dozen. This is not like a morning's training course to to uh, do CPR. I mean, to, to, to learn how to do a ventilator with somebody who's half flatlining and is intubated, like yeah. that's a very, very skilled, big, complicated task. And, you know, estimates are you need like ten to 15,000 more of those people, but you can't just crank them out like school children in Pink Floyd's The Wall movie. And so uh, I think that is the big issue. And my concern has not necessarily been the fatality of the illness itself, although that, of course, is a big concern, but this issue around overwhelming the healthcare system, pushing other stuff aside, and that being the big problem. I mean, look, this thing's out. It's going to be part of our permanent human landscape, and probably, like yeah. the flu, everyone's going to get it at some point or another, but can right. we get a vaccine? Can we get a treatment? Can we flatten the curve? What do you think about that kind of approach to things? Well, I think it's valid. I do think it's valid. Um, but again, if you want to, and here's what's confusing to me, if you want to stop a virus's spread, you shut it down. I mean, you absolutely shut it down. You will, by doing what, what I call again, half-assed measures, um, you can go to a bank, but not a baseball game. What's up with that? Uh, so, okay, so, so hang on, you say shut it down completely. What would that look like to you? Martial law, um, which again, is the, the question is, would that be something constitutional in the U.S.? Is that uh, too much of an erosion of civil liberties to protect public health? I don't know. I don't know the answers to these questions. But the only way you contain a, a virus, as they did with SARS and MERS, which were very deadly viruses, they they eclipsed the virulence, the, the lethality of this COVID-19. Bad bugs. If SARS or MERS gets out amongst the general population, hey, man, I'm staying in my house. I'm not going to work. I'm going to stay in my house, tend to my vegetables. Uh, maybe I'll get some rats, uh, but uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm not going anywhere because those are killers. Those are true killers. To get back to your point, to your question, um, how we handle this, I like to say this, and I'm not going to, I don't mean to be obtuse, but I work in an emergency department, and um, the one I work in now is not that busy, I have to say. It can get busy at times, but in busy, busy emergency departments in inner cities, et cetera, um, it's always understaffed. It's chronically understaffed. And why is that? Because you can never schedule appropriately for unscheduled, unforeseen care or catastrophes. You just you can't. I mean, you can do all the planning in the world that you want to do, and then boom, you never know what's going to hit you. The variables are too great, and pretty soon, quicker than sooner than later, the system gets overwhelmed. Your plans get overwhelmed. That's an expected. I mean, that's just an expected. So I thought maybe this is a test run. Maybe this is something the government is saying, okay, China, you unleash this virus on us, and we're just going to have a test run. We'll see how it goes. We'll shut down our economy. I, I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong about that, but you know, to, to answer the question about making more ventilators um, and, and the people who do them, um, you know, interestingly, New York, I read where New York City had closed down 16 hospitals over the since 2003. Uh, don't do that, New York City. Don't do that. I mean, it's a city of 8 million people. My gosh, it's, it's a small country. Uh, you can't afford to lose hospitals. You need to build more hospitals. Um, we, 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 yeah, I think that if anything good comes out of this, Steph, and again, I don't mean to jump around, but there are many reasons why we don't, why our, why our healthcare system is in danger of being overwhelmed. Not the least of which is something called, have you ever heard of certificate of need laws? Believe it or things? not, I am ridiculously familiar with those based upon a presentation I did about 10 years ago. So okay. yeah, why don't you right, tell people great. why yeah. there are so few hospitals in this time of need? Right. Because these certificate of need laws that exist, I believe it's still, I'm, I'm, I, I can't, I'm not going to lie. 
most states still have these things in place. And they were passed 40, 50 years ago with the idea that we don't want to uh, build too many hospitals. We want to have certain hospitals in certain areas and et cetera, et cetera. And the intention, like with many things, started off good, but very quickly it became abused. And so what happens with the certificate of need laws, if I want to go build a hospital, okay, if I want to build a hospital in Timbuktu, I have to, and then that state has certificate of need laws. I have to go and petition a committee to see if there is a need for my hospital on the east end of Timbuktu or wherever I want to place it. I have to ask permission from a local committee. And guess who's on that committee? <laughs> Members of the other hospitals in town. It's an amazing, uh, it's amazing how these things hardly get passed. Um, because you have to petition the existing businesses in town to join their club. And how often do you think they say, nope, we're going to, and now they could build another hospital at the end of town, but you are shut out from doing that. It's not free market at all. I love it when people say that our free market, look at what the free market in healthcare is doing. They, folks, we don't have a free market in healthcare, and that is just the tip of the iceberg, the whole certificate of need thing. But that explains in large part why we don't have hospitals dotted all over the place where they might might do well, they might thrive because of certificate of need laws. There are other considerations to be had as well, of course, but those are a biggie. If we got rid of those, who knows what the free market would do, right? I mean, the free market tends to provide. So we wouldn't have hospitals where we need them everywhere, in rural areas, et cetera, even in some urban areas. But I think, you know, given if the free market were let rain, were let, you know, let free and un unfettered I think we have a lot better situation regarding this. I, and also, you know, I'm amazed at um, how people are pointing to President Trump and saying he's not providing enough ventilators. He's not providing enough masks. I mean, do President, I don't even, I'm not even sure that President Trump knew what a ventilator was before all this, and certainly not his job to provide them. But then they pointed out that Cuomo, that the governor of New York, and I don't know again how responsible he was for this, but apparently they had stockpiled and pigeonholed thousands if not millions of masks I'm, I'm getting my numbers wrong on that but um and if that's true then it's like why is the government involved in this i mean i could see having an emergency supply sort of like they have an emergency supply of oil emergency reserve or whatever but the government shouldn't be involved in the free flow of these things at all this should be a free market and uh these companies you know one of the things that trump is outstanding at as i've heard and read is deregulation they need to take some some large scythes to the regulations involving healthcare and get rid of a lot of these things so that we can you know like companies like my pillow can start manufacturing masks i mean any company that sees a profit in doing something is going to do that um and if there's money to be made with this two trillion dollars out of thin air we just got um i think that you know the free market would reign so not to be obtuse on your question but i think that that is a consideration uh, regarding the the curve and overwhelming existing hospital facilities, of course, it's always a consideration. But you can't schedule for that, A. And B, is it worth really, what about the damage that's going to be done from shutting down all these businesses, the mental illness that's going to occur, the depression, the suicide, the substance abuse, et cetera, the exacerbation of physical ailments based upon the mental stress that people are undergoing. So none of this is good in any it's, way. It's funny, you know, I... Uh... I sort of hate to, to put it this way because it's very easy to misinterpret this kind of stuff, but it's almost like the universe is just telling us to grow the hell up because everybody is so used <laughs> to not having to make tough decisions. You right. know, we, we right. have a tough decision right now. Right. And, and the tough decision is, as you point out, okay, do we go back to work? 
because you know people are hurting, they're stressed, they're worried, they're upset. Uh, you know, some you know they always call them elective surgeries, like it's just a hobby. But I mean, this stuff is important. You know, people it's people important. need this stuff. Yeah. And gallbladders so, didn't start didn't stop going bad because of this. Right. No so no, so there's still appendices too, appendixes. So yeah. So we have this this big issue, and we're just really out of the habit of making tough decisions. You know, right. like you got the mayor right. of New York saying, you can't put a price in human life. Like, well, of course you can. We, we do, we do it time. all the time. <laughs> sure. Has, has he never heard of triage? I mean, of course you put a price on, on life, human insurance. life. Life insurance. Life <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, insurance. Right. You name it, right? I mean, so this is like a big wake-up call. We've been kind of living in this dream world where you can just print more money to solve problems. And, you know, and the deaths caused by, say, the FDA, which run into the millions by the <laughs> FDA banning uh, yeah. uh, treatments and, and therapies and drugs that are perfectly legal and safe right. in other countries, killed millions of Americans since the thalidomide scared in the 60s. Uh, right. That's all hidden, right? But now, you know, we, we need something in a hurry. And the FDA is like, oh, yeah, you can just, you know, no problem. Two months, we're done. And it's like, well, what happened to the 10-year thing? It's like, oh, well, no, now, see, it's really important, so we're doing it now. <laughs> we'll fast-track it. And that well, is you know, uh, really, uh, people are just getting a chance to see <clears throat> just how fast things can be when necessary. And I think it's giving them a sense of just the kind of slow-motion sickness that we're stuck into medically the rest of the time. Well, thank you, President Trump. I mean, deregulate, get rid of these burdensome regulations. You know, uh, this nanny state that exists is a huge nanny state, and people have come to rely on it way too much. And I put out a tweet the other day. I, I would challenge your viewers to answer my tweet. I said, Americans, uh, choose one. Uh, a, um, the government gets you gets to tell you where to sit, stand, and sleep. But, you know, your medical care, if you come down with coronavirus, is taken care of. Or B, the government lets you be. You you live your own life. But if you come down with coronavirus, you're on your own, pal. And and the majority of people who answered the question said, of course, B, you know, I want my freedom, of course. But somebody answered it realistically and they said, uh, B until I need A. <laughs> and that is, you know, when when I when the poop hits the fan, I, I get to turn to the government, they get to take care of all my needs. And that this illustrates a larger problem that I'm very frustrated with regarding health care and health insurance, et cetera. And when it comes to like not to get too far off the topic here, but when it comes to this concept of universal health care or Medicare for all or single payer health care system, you cannot let people live life. Uh, in the manner they choose. They can't live life by their own terms. They can't smoke and, and be obese and, and get diabetes and have these lifestyle choices that lead to significant illness, you know, being 200 pounds overweight and pounding your knees day in and day out. Those knees are going to need to be replaced one of these days. You cannot let people live life on their own terms. It's sort of like what you say with the welfare state and the and the open borders. We can't maintain that. Uh, you cannot likewise within the healthcare system maintain a system where people get to live life the way they choose to do, and then when the shit hits the fan, they get to turn to the government, they get to turn to others who then get to pay for all their care. We're not going to be able to afford that. Uh, as sooner or later, the mathematics of it, as you again say, the mathematics of it are going to come crashing down. So I've got a couple of questions coming in from the uh, audience here. And thank you so much to the uh, close to 3,000 people who are dropping by to to have a look. Um, so uh, ask him, that's you, about the relationship between a sick population like obese America, weak immune systems versus healthy population with good immune systems as it relates to the Wu flu. Oh, great, great question. I would say that regarding immune systems, okay, people, I'm not a big believer in colloidal silver and things like that and supplements and stuff. I got to say, and half the people are going to turn me off right now, I'm sure. 
But uh, I think that scientifically, a lot of that stuff has yet to be proven. I would say that unless you have an immune system compromise, unless you have an autoimmune disorder or HIV or SCID, which is the severe combined immune deficiency, your immune system is probably puddling along just fine. And now as we get older, and I'm 51, so I'm waiting for the day. As we get older, our immune systems do wear out just like brake pads, et cetera, on a car. So your immune system isn't functioning properly. The best advice I would say for boosting your immune system is eat right, get plenty of exercise, get plenty of sleep, don't smoke, don't drink, uh, well, drink, you know, don't drink outside of moderation, avoid drugs, uh, try to stay level-headed, don't get angry a lot, uh, don't get depressed. So those things will help keep your immune system uh, op optimal. The obesity question, great question. I was hoping to answer this, hoping I didn't forget it. Let me explain the dynamics. You mentioned ventilators earlier, and I'm going to go a little bit into detail on this explanation too. I've seen where some companies, I think the MIT crowd has built this ventilator that you can MacGyver up out of a few, you know, two old Bibles and a, and a, a hot water bottle or something like that. <clears throat> Those are not going to work. I got to tell you right now, they're not going to work. Ventilators are sophisticated pieces of equipment. Um, we have this thing called PEEP, which even when you breathe out all the way, you still have some pressure in your lungs, some air pressure that maintains these little alveoli, these little bitty, teeny tiny microscopic air sacs that keeps them open. If they weren't kept open, they have glue coating the inside of them. They would stick together and, and, and enough of them collapse. You get uh, what's called atelectasis. That puts you at risk for pneumonia, for increased mucus secretions, all kinds of stuff. So even when you breathe all the way out, you still have some air in your lungs popping up like a balloon you will your balloons will never deflate entirely in your lung or they shouldn't uh so these ventilators are good they're great and we can we can adjust this peep it's called positive end expiratory pressure how much pressure is remaining in your lungs at the end of an expiration when you breathe out that's a key component of ventilation especially if you're going to ventilate somebody long term for days or weeks now let's talk about obesity if you need to ventilate somebody long term, if you are obese, if you're carrying around a person and a half on your body, no offense, folks, you need to lose that as soon as possible. Because if you ever wind up on a ventilator, be it at 16 or at 65, you are in for a world of hurt because every time you breathe, that machine has to push that much harder. Imagine bench pressing, you know, uh, somebody like Shania Twain versus somebody like uh, Andre the Giant. I mean, you're going you're gonna to put a lot more force into that. And the ventilator machine has to work a lot harder to inflate your lungs if you're obese, if you're carrying around a lot of extra weight, than, say, somebody who's not obese, like my lungs, for instance, or yours, Steph. What's the problem there? We use our muscles all the time to breathe. You, the, the breathing muscles are, and the heart are the most active muscles in the body because you're using them all the time. Stop using them, you're dead, okay? So bottom line is you're using these muscles all the time. They're very well conditioned to, to breathing for you. As soon as a machine takes over that breathing function for you, what happens with muscle? Use it or lose, lose it, it, right? And so people, when you when you're ventilated someone on a ventilator, it's not as easy as saying, oh, just put them on a ventilator for a couple of weeks and pull them off and it'll all be right. No, it's not that simple at all because it takes a long time to take someone, we call it weaning them off the ventilator when they've been on a ventilator for a while because those muscles have atrophied. They have shrunken down. Your diaphragm shrinks down. It just doesn't have the capacity to breathe 
breathe for you like it once did. The problem there is with COVID-19, it looks like it is requiring prolonged ventilations for those who need it. Um, and so if you're obese, you're going to have a lot harder time. And I, 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 you're going to have a lot harder time recovering from that, getting off the ventilator. Your risk of death goes way up. I have no idea what it is because guess what? They're not putting this out there. They're not really talking about this. When they say comorbidities, I love how they say diabetes and smoking and high blood pressure. Diabetes can lower your immune system, by the way. Diabetes lowers your immunity. So if you're diabetic, you want to keep very good control of that to help your immune system. But high blood pressure, I'm not too sure what that and how that interacts unless you have organ damage from long, long-standing hypertension, high blood pressure. But asthma, I'm asthmatic. Do you think I want COVID-19? <laughs> Hell no, I don't want COVID-19. But um, asthma predisposes you to this. But if you're obese, you're in for a heck of a ride. And they're not putting that statistic out there. They're not saying that these people have obesity. But I suspect that a large number, pun intended, uh, of the people who are dying from COVID-19 after being ventilated are probably one of their risk factors is obesity. It's so prevalent in the American population. It's huge. Well, maybe no maybe not for long. It's almost like the evil planet is going on a right. diet. All right. Right. So um, this is uh, something from another uh, listener. Please ask him about tonic water. It is already known to prevent malaria and dengue. Chloroquine is made of synthetic quinine, the same stuff used to make tonic water. Um, can, can soda save us? Uh, how, do, how does that play uh, out? I'm not even going to go where Trump did. I'm going to say, uh, as my my friend from high school would have said, not no, but hell no. I I, I don't think that's going to do much at all. Why, why have is, there been some governors preventing? Is it is it because it's an off-label use of the medicine? Is it chloroquine I that is being know. used to this? Uh, why those wacky leftist governors are are seeking to announce their power over their population? Uh, you tell me, Steph. You're the philosopher, not me. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it has anything to do with medicine. I know that there's an uproar about their practicing medicine without a license. Well, guess what, folks? The government does that all the time. Uh, bureaucrats do that. Uh, corporate bosses in the healthcare setting do that. I like to say that physicians in an ideal world, physicians should never be employed. Uh, because my duty, my primary duty should be to the patient. Well, if I'm employed, I have a, a moral and an ethical or legal and ethical duty to my employer. And I can tell you firsthand, we'll get to this in another video podcast someday, uh, what happens when those two paths cross, the employer wins virtually every time. But yet the practice of medicine goes on all the time. But yeah, these governors are wacky. I mean, why would you, I don't, I can't understand the motivation other than just uh here I am. Look at me. I'm big man or big woman, you know, and uh, it's crazy what they're doing. Crazy because this chloroquine has shown promise. It's not well studied yet. Uh, it's not a panacea. It's not something that I'd advise, you know, you taking without a physician's uh, supervision because it has some it has some dangers associated with it. Um, but, you know, it looks promising so far. So it's well worth studying. It's well worth uh, pursuing as a treatment, but not not. I drink all the tonic water you want if you like tonic water. I'd personally throw some flavoring in there. But, you know, it's not going to help you prevent coronavirus or cure it. Now, what about this strategy of herd immunity? Some of the British government approach has been, uh, yeah, let's let it ride, ride it out. You know, let's get some herd yeah. immunity in here. <clears throat> and, of course, the flu has been around forever. This COVID-19 is, is new. And so the issue is with flattening the curve is due to a lack of herd, herd immunity. Um, okay, so herd immunity is when enough members of the population have been exposed to or somehow acquired immunity to a particular agent that the risk of transmission, the R0, as you talked about earlier, the, the, the level of contagiousness 
of a of something that gets passed from human to human goes down significantly. So let's be clear about that. That's what herd immunity implies is that, you know, if I sneeze on you and we're at a baseball game and and you are immune to whatever I just gave you by sneezing on you and then you turn around and sneeze on somebody else, you're not going to pass it on because you have uh, immunity. And uh, when enough people in a population have this, it's called herd immunity, it can seriously slow down, if not stop, the spread of a disease. Um, that being said, I, I wanted to bring this up too, and I guess this is a good point to do it. Um, I don't know how many members of your audience uh, have, have episodes every few years where they get sick, they get gastroenteritis, they vomit, sometimes have diarrhea. This happens to me regularly every two to three years, man. It comes on like clockwork, and I'm like, oh, now here we go. Because there's few things I like worse or hate worse in the world than vomiting. But I get it. Um, and it's because it's typically caused by another virus called the Norwalk virus or Norwalk agent or norovirus. And uh, this thing we don't have lasting immunity to. Uh, the immunity typically lasts two to three years. And then for some reason, the immunity wanes. It goes away. So you're immune from this stuff for a couple of three good years that you can enjoy life. And then at some point you lose your immunity, it comes around again. Uh, so this may ultimately happen with COVID-19. My point about this is, is how is this stuff spread? Uh, this uh, norovirus, there was a famous experiment, not an experiment, but a study done where a woman in a restaurant yacked, she vomited. And uh, when she did so, 90% of the people at that table also came down with the same illness, vomiting and diarrhea within a few days. Uh, across the room, a good six meters away from her, 25% of the people still came down with that same illness. They never came in contact with her, with her, with her vomit or diarrhea or anything like that. She didn't have diarrhea, but they never came in contact with any of her fluids. But this stuff is so contagious and so readily spread that it, it infects massive numbers of people. Um, hopefully with herd immunity, we could slow down, if not stop, the spread of coronavirus, of this COVID-19. So to answer the question, herd immunity is important. It's going to be a while before we get there, though. Unless they come out with a vaccine. Right. Uh, and I, I got to tell you, uh, this is just my particular personal opinion. Again, not any kind of medical advice, but you know how they say uh, don't don't run version 1.0 of anything. I got to I got to have some <laughs> questions about this vaccine. They're going to come out with this like, hey, do you get to put on your guinea pig outfit and become a furry right. when it comes to taking 1.0 of an incredibly rushed vaccine right. during a time of crisis? I think I'll just let, you know, uh, after you, I'm going to be very polite, you know, after you, <laughs> after you, please let me see how this plays out for a while. I can stay home if I have to. Well, I'm not sure that this vaccine is going to be rushed. They have definitely, I'm certain, been working on this for, when I say they, the colloquial, they, uh, drug companies, I'm sure, have been working on this for quite a while because again coronaviruses in humans mostly cause the common cold now if you could put out a vaccine that protects against the common cold uh, man you uh, print your own atm you got your own atm machine there um and they're not the only viruses that cause colds by the way okay but they they account for about 15 percent of them so um the vaccine that's going to come out uh you know the the trickiness i'm not sure the ins and outs of why they haven't been able to design a vaccine for this it could be as simple as it hasn't been uh, kind of defeating my own argument I just made, but it could be, you know, many of these medicines haven't been explored and, and uh, researched simply because there's no money to be made in it. There's not much money uh, to be made in, in whatever they're trying to seek. So it may be rushed. I'm not sure where they are in vaccine development on coronaviruses. I, I haven't read up on that, but I would say that uh, the FDA 
heretofore has been very rigorous in its trials and sometimes too rigorous, as you point out. It's not allowed medications in that have shown efficacy around the world and other countries. Uh, so I don't know how this process is going to get affected with the, uh, you know, putting it on turbo mode and, and uh, getting rid of some of these uh, hoops and jumps that they've got to go through. So I don't know. I, I'd probably take it myself. I, I'm a bit of a cavalier in that regard, but I'd probably right. do it. All right. I definitely um, would do it since I work with it. Yeah. Let's uh, let's talk testicles as as always. Um, <laughs> have you heard anything about a study showing COVID nineteen attacks testicles and kidneys? Uh, and this is uh, sorry, so somebody I had a, a, on a while ago was talking about how it doesn't just go for the lungs; like it plugs in just about everywhere you've got tissue, which is pretty much everywhere. Right. 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 Uh, I have not heard of that study. I'm not surprised at all. These viruses are so small. And uh, they they wreak havoc on all kinds of cells. The guy I went to medical school with, um, who's still still around, he's still a physician. Uh, in his mid thirties, he came down with a virus called Coxsackie virus. Now, in ninety nine percent of people who contract Coxsackie virus, it's not that big of a deal. They just might have a cold, might have sniffles, and get over it. Nope, this stuff went for his heart. And uh, it caused what's called a, a viral cardiomyopathy. It infected the tissues of his heart. And he was very sick for a while, for a couple of months there. Looked like he might even need a heart transplant at one point in his mid-30s, this guy. Um, <clears throat> but he recovered the virus, which there is no treatment for this, uh, no antibiotic, so to speak, to kill most of these viruses, including COVID-19. Um, they, they, he got over it. Uh, he is doing fine, as far as I know. I haven't talked to him in a few years. But yeah, these viruses are capable of attacking any one of a number of different tissues. And it's it's interesting. What I have heard about is a loss of taste and a loss of smell, hmm. which would go with it infecting the you know the upper respiratory tract. But I heard of one woman at least who came down with hearing loss in one ear uh, as a as a, a what's called a prodrome a symptom. Uh, at the very beginning of her illness with COVID-19. So, yeah, anything's possible. Uh, Stefan and or Kevin, actually, I'm going to lob this one over to you. It's a bit technical, uh, and maybe you can sort of explain why this is a relevant question. Could all the sanitization we are doing and that all the stores are going through bring on a superbug? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I used to, um, uh, doing what I do, working with germs all the time, uh, I still do it occasionally. I would shower with, uh, uh, you know, I don't have that much hair. I don't, I don't use hair products or anything. So <clears throat> I would use what's called chlorhexidine. Uh, the, the trade name for this stuff is Hibiclens. It's the pink liquid that we use in hospitals. And I literally would take it and put it all over my body, head to toe, and wash it down the drain. Um, and then they used to make antibacterial soaps uh, with this ingredient called triclosan in them. And of course, the, and I think that's been banned. I think triclosan in the U.S. has been banned because they're finding that it was getting washed into the you know, sewage system, which ultimately goes into rivers. And this is a molecule, this is a drug that will escape the sewage treatment plant, you know, where, where water gets turned from sewage into nice clean water again. Um, <clears throat> and once this triclosan was getting out into the environment, it was doing things, you know, and this is what I've read and this is what I understand, of course. Could be all hyperbole on the part of the EPA, uh, so I have to doubt this. I have to take this with a grain of salt. But it's apparently killing fish and killing wildlife, so they banned this stuff. So to answer the question, I guess anything is possible, but the way these hand sanitizers work uh, is, and soaps, you know, soaps are great. Let me explain hand washing, if I may. 
Soap is great at disrupting fatty things because soap has what, what it, it undergoes a process called saponification and it literally disrupts cell membranes that have a lot of fat in them. So soap is great at, at, at getting rid of bacteria, but the largest, the biggest mechanism by which you wash bugs off of you is by washing them off of you. I mean, when you wash your hands, it's not a simple question of, you know, just a, uh, you really want to scrub your hands. There's a great video by a Brit. Uh, a British physician, John Campbell, I think his name is, he's on YouTube, and he undergoes, he literally shows you how to wash your hands and scrub <laughs> the the fingers like this, get your thumbs and things like that. Wonderful accent he has. But I watched that video and I'm like, shit, I just learned a few things. <laughs> I've washed my hands for, oh gosh, years. And well, also uh, viruses, you, are, uh, viruses are shrouded in, in this fat and that right. disrupts the whole thing. Correct. So soap is known to destroy coronavirus. Now, hand sanitizers work much the same way. They, they, any, any of these things disrupt cell membranes. They disrupt viral envelopes, capsid envelopes, which are the, the containers that viruses are in. So I would say do it. The risk is uh, definitely uh, outweighed by the potential benefit that you get. So I definitely, I don't think it's a concern for the All environment. Right. Um, <clears throat> have you had any thoughts, Kevin, about the wide disparity in outcomes between different countries such as Korea versus Italy versus France, sure. Canada, the US and so on? Well, of course, uh, uh, you know, the disease is the disease, right? The treatment is the difference. How do we treat these people? And I think in South Korea, you know, and, and a big part of this outcome has to do with shutting down borders, getting serious about about keeping illness out. Um, <clears throat> you know, Russia, I understand, has had very few cases because they they literally closed their borders. I've been across the Soviet Union's border between the Soviet Union and Finland one time. It was kind of a scary process. I'll tell you all about it sometime later. But uh, I actually had to go across there twice. But um, yeah, when they close the borders and keep the disease out, that's a big factor. But it all depends on the healthcare system that you have in place as well. And in Italy, I, I want to address this. My understanding, okay, is that in Italy, lots of people died. And I think, you know, if I'm reading it correctly, the reason that a lot of these people died is because, well, number one, they didn't have enough equipment, but they were also apparently making the decision that, you know, Vito, Vito is a little old to uh, go and, uh, you know, take care of him. So we're going to, you know, I can see Father Guido Sarducci making this uh pronouncement at bedside that, you know, who's going to live and who's going to die. I think they came down to that. And so when you do that, when you arbitrarily start withholding treatment, people are going to die who wouldn't otherwise die. Um, so that's that's why I think a lot of the disparity is. And in, in the U.S., let's face it, man, we got the greatest healthcare system in the world, as I've said time and again. In the U.S., we got the best going on in the world right here, baby. The only problem is how we buy it, how we sell it, and how we pay for it. But that's for another talk. All right. Okay. Um, so I wanted to, to bring something up here, which is um, I'm going to anonymize the heck out of this for, for some fairly, uh, fairly obvious reasons. But um, this is the kind of stuff that I'm getting from people in, uh, in hospitals. And it is, uh, well, a smidge alarming when it comes to preparedness. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's see here. Okay. So this is a fellow. Um, uh, I'm a RRT, which is a registered respiratory, uh, respiratory therapist. He, so he's the one who intubates patients and manages the ventilator. He's done this for a long, long time. 
and he's shocked at my hospital's isolation procedures for COVID. Talked to my boss before, and they showed. They said, oh, this, the, the, all of the steps the hospital has taken. So what do you need? You need designated areas. You need negative pressure rooms. Pressure. Now, I think I understand this. Correct me if I'm wrong. You obviously you know better, but if you've got a balloon with holes and you blow into it, then it's going to blow out all the stuff through the sides of the holes uh, of the uh, right. of the balloon, right? So right. a negative right. pressure room means that you've got to have lower air pressure in the room than outside so that air comes in rather than being pushed out. And uh, PE, PPE, which is personal protective equipment and so on. He says, Wuhan Corona is a highly infectious airborne virus. Airborne isolation procedures have been well established, I guess, uh, uh, particularly since SARS and all of that. So he's cared uh, for patients to rule out tuberculosis, which is also airborne. Airborne mm -hmm. ISO requires a negative pressure room, an N95 or a PAPR. Do you know what, what that is? No. Okay. Uh, some sure personal apparatus for protection <clears throat> from, I don't know, regicide, I'm going to go with. Uh, gowns, gloves, eye protection, and so on. My hospital was using surgical masks, basically a placebo for airborne virus. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Droplet isolation yeah. is very different from airborne pushing patients with suspected or possible COVID in public hallways, um, riddling public elevators with two uh, registered nurses in surgical masks, pushing a bed with a COVID patient, spreading it all over the hospital. He said, I had ICU that night. My coworker had ER, the ICU intensive care unit, ER, emergency room, of course. They were getting calls to give breathing treatments to those patients. No N95 mask. Oh, did I mention? You must be yearly fit tested for the N95. This is a big... I want to address that, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. That's just the big Darth Vader mask, right? Uh, no, if you, no. Go ahead. If you have a beard or the mask doesn't fit tight enough, you fail the fit test and must wear PAPR for airborne ISO. Oh, Nobody see. in the hospital had even been fit tested. Sorry, all caps, but this was maddening to me. So much I could tell you about this. I haven't been back left a while ago. Still today, they're not doing proper airborne ISO, even though it is a well-known and established procedure. They also say uh, MRSA uh, and yeah. C. diff ISO don't need gloves now. Did these diseases become less contagious or infectious what? at the same time corona hit? I think you know the answer. The mess has me so upset. I'm so mad at my hospital, the CDC, the right. World Health Organization, and so many other people. I really want to let people know what is happening so something will change. All the staff will get sick at the same time the population gets sick. It's going to be worse than you can imagine. I just want to scream. I hope you see this. Thanks. Love your show. And then this is uh, the man and or woman who has um, uh, mentioned that. And I just wanted to mention one other thing, and I'll turn it back over to you. He said, there's a point every woman is missing. This is what I mentioned earlier. They can have 100,000 ventilators, but unless you have an additional twenty to 25,000 more registered respiratory therapists to manage the patient on them, they're pointless. Uh, these people uh, go into ARDS. I think that's acute respiratory distress syndrome, I'm going to assume. Yeah. They are right. incredibly difficult to oxygenate and ventilate. They need to be paralyzed and heavily sedated. Yeah, the nurse mentioned that, that paralysis helps, of course, take down the amount of oxygen their muscles need. Because of the vent settings needed to oxygenate, they need inverse ratio pressure control, highly phi O2, high peep. They are yeah. prone face down. Their eyes bulge out from the pressure. Men's scrotums swell. Hey, we're back. We're back there. Uh, very difficult to manage. Just having one of these patients along with a normal assignment means I'm probably not getting a lunch or peeing until I get home after my shift. My hospital has a total of about 40 ventilators available to use. We only have four to five registered respiratory therapists. Not all are even capable of managing patients on these settings. So that's uh, that would be 10 of these patients per RRT. Impossible. Patients in this condition right. are also one-on-one -on -one for an experienced ICU registered nurse. This will be a major problem. 
and that uh, add that the isolation for use is subpar. This will not go well. Thank you again. So he just wanted to get this information out. I'm not trying to shoehorn it in here, but it's not just about the machinery. I mean, as I said before, you know, it's not much point having planes if you haven't got any pilots. Yes, that's absolutely true. And everything he said, if it's a he, everything that person said, I totally agree with. I, I have a joke that I've put out. Uh, what do you call 500 hospital administrators learning how to empty bedpans? Hopeless. Uh, <laughs> because they just can't be, you know, they have no idea. They have no clue. Nevertheless, how to handle a healthcare emergency. Um, <clears throat> the hospitals are coping the best they can. I'm not making an excuse for that. But this is territory where we've never been. Uh, it's territory. It's totally new for everybody. I'm as shocked as anybody is at the, the steps that are being undertaken. Mistakes are going to get made. Uh, and that's not a cop out. That's not an excuse. Um, like I said, if there's anything, I'm an optimist. So I try to look at the positive of things. Maybe this will be a great test run to see for when, when the big one really hits uh, and we really have something that is truly deadly, like Ebola, you know, that will melt you from the inside out. Um, not something that kills, you know, less than 1% of those it infects. So, um, this is a wake-up call as to what really is going on, what really needs to happen. And our healthcare system needs to be boosted at every conceivable level. Politicians need to get out of it. They need to stop mucking around with it and let us do what we need to do and give us the support we need, not just money, but the support and regulations. And the, I have a, a, a hashtag on Twitter, don't stop repealing, like the Journey song, don't stop repealing. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's going to be stuck in my head. That song is the Sorry. real virus I just wanted to mention, but all right. <laughs> well, they need to repeal many, many, many laws and regulations. The HMO Act of 1973, HIPAA, ERISA, all these laws that were put in place. Uh, that are just terrible, terrible, terrible for healthcare and the, the proper practice of healthcare. Anyway, as long as I'm adding to my wish list, uh, I, I wanted to say that this again illustrates how complicated these ventilators are. He mentioned FiO2, which is how much oxygen you're putting into someone, uh, and the inverse ratios. These things are not just hooking up a bellows, you know, to some dude to, to squeeze box, a rusty old squeeze box pushing it together. These ventilators are very complicated. They're complicated machinery, and, they're, and in fact, they're so complicated, Steph. I don't run them. I, I turn to the RT. I go, what do you think? And they DM me what they want to do. And I say, great, let's go with that. I just wanted to point tuning. out how enjoyable it is that we've talked about the who and squeeze boxes. Uh, I just wanted to mention that. There's <laughs> right. a there's an ancient guy joke of music. But sorry, go ahead. Right. So, you know, I, I mean, we, we, we tailor, we uh, tweak the ventilator based upon how the patient's doing. That's another thing is it, you have to watch those minute by minute, hour by hour to see how things are going. Um, yeah, there was something else I was going to say in there, uh, but, you know, you can't plan for an emergency. I mean, you cannot adequately schedule for that which you cannot foresee. It just is impossible. Well, and the annoying thing is, though, this was kind of foreseeable, <laughs> but, you know, right, the, the but... thing is, because we have a, a, a fairly low educated population, what happens is if you say there's going to be a disaster and you act to remediate it, and then the disaster doesn't happen because you remediated. Everyone says, "Hey, man, wolf. there was nothing. You know, there was nothing, right? Prime you know, wolf. jump out of the way. Right. A car's going to hit you, and you jump out of the way. Hey, man, the, the car, car didn't even hit me. Why, why, why did I have to yeah. jump? It's like I don't know. It's just one of these kinds of things that. Okay, so let's close it off here uh, because uh, it looks like the chat is devolving into a certain amount of jokes that I can't repeat here on air, which actually <laughs> can, can be kind of funny. But anyway. Um, Let's talk so, about them later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just so one comment uh, and then a little speech. Then tell tell me what what your sort of closing thoughts are. 
So the, the first is that here's an example of just how delicate this whole healthcare system is. So there's something that came out of the Canadian media today where they said, whatever you do, don't leave the cities to go to your cottage to wait out the quarantine. Right. And you think, well, except you? for Trudeau. Yeah, except, except for our Trudeau's family, of course, the first thing to do. Oh, good. Now we're going to go out to the cottage and wait out the quarantine. But right. uh, and the reason for that is that, you know, everybody plans like the amount of spreadsheets and data analysis that goes into trying to provide health care is really complex. So these communities, they're dead in the winter and they're crazy busy in the summer, like 20 or 30 times the population. So, of sure. course, in the winter, in March or whatever, nobody's really thinking, or April, nobody's really thinking that much of going up to the cottage, at least not in, in uh, big numbers. So, you know, if you get hundreds of thousands of people <laughs> pouring out of the cities and going to their cottages, not only do the hospitals not have enough resources to deal with, even if there's nothing in particular, just the increased requirements of those extra people in the winter where they don't have people, but even things like the grocery stores aren't going to be prepared. I mean, they can obviously gear up maybe fairly quickly, but with everything yeah. kind of half shut down, it's a little bit tricky. So this is yeah. how finely calibrated things are. And this kind of monkey wrench, you know, we should have a little bit more give in these kinds of systems. And I wanted to bring you on here, A, because I respect your opinion, of course, enormously, and B, because mm -hmm. uh, I did want to provide some counter to some of the uh, people who are, uh, you know, kind of alarming in, in what it is that they say. But my sort of thought is, and I you know, want to get this sort of out to the audience as a whole and let me know what you think or, or give me your final thoughts, but I'm like, pr pretend it's a disaster, you know, yeah. pr pretend it's a disaster, pretend it's as bad as, as people say, what's the worst that can happen? It's like prepping, you know, if, if you have a right, bunch of food right. in the basement, right. well, you're going to eat it sooner or later. And it's way better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. I so say you know, all the time. If you're a prepper and, and you've got stuff around, you get to eat your mistakes. But if you don't have that stuff, you can't. What are you going to eat? Like your, your regret? Right. So, you know, to me, <clears throat> I, I am an optimist in the long run, but I'm definitely a pessimist in the short run in that I'm going to go with the sure. worst case scenario here because, um, well, it's a Northern European trait to be afraid of winter. And it really does seem like winter uh, is coming. But I will certainly give you the final thoughts on on attitudes and, and what people should be doing. Well, let me let me say this. I, I, I should have said this earlier. As an emergency physician, we are taught how to triage cases. Let's say that I drive up and there's a plane crash and uh, I get out of my car and run over to the area where people are lying around. Uh, we are taught to triage people based upon their chances of survival. Uh, and this is much what like what happened in Italy. I would imagine that, you know, if it's clear that that someone's beyond the pale, I mean, if they have a non-survivable injury, you skip them and you move on to the next person and you're just rapidly assessing. That being said, the reason I bring that up is once again, to illustrate the point that uh, you, you cannot take care of all those people. You just can't. I mean, any system in the world is going to get overloaded. Look at toilet paper of all things. Why I don't know, but look at toilet paper. People went pun intended, batshit crazy, and started buying all this toilet paper. Uh, and now there's no toilet paper on aisles or around stores around town. It's crazy. Um, and the toilet man paper manufacturers are going, well, how do we plan for this? You can't. I mean, those shelves were all full of toilet paper the night before, I guarantee you. Now there's been a mass run on it. Boom, it's all gone. So I don't think we can ever adequately plan for these things, even, and the response is always going to be bad. When the problem is bad, the response is always going to be bad because we just can never plan for this. So what can you do as an individual at an individual level? If there's one, again, I share your optimism long-term. If there's another good thing that will come out of this, 
is that hopefully people will start having a newfound respect for these viral contagious illnesses, namely the flu. Uh, I know that you and I talked about it and it's like, man, I highly recommend people get vaccinated against the flu every year. I got vaccinated against the flu back in September, a month ago, right now, four weeks ago, I was laid low with the flu. So it's not 100%. I like to say neither are uh, bulletproof vests. And yet, I don't know a police officer worth his or her weight and salt that would not go out without a bulletproof vest on when they're on duty. So, <clears throat> you know, these are, these are things that we can do to protect ourselves against known variables that are out there lurking, waiting to kill you, um, namely influenza virus. So if anything, hopefully, I don't think social distancing is a bad idea at all. Not all the time, but if you see someone coughing or sneezing in a grocery store, beforehand, you would have just walked right past them, followed them with your shopping cart behind them down the bread aisle and not a worry in your mind. Now, maybe you will say, hey, that guy's coughing. I'm going to go go over to the Kool-Aid section now and then I'll be back for the bread. Uh, let that stuff die down out of the air or whatever. Um, and so if, if anything comes out of this good, it's hopefully a heightened awareness of just how contagious, just how deadly these things can be and how common they are. They're out there. So if you can take steps, good hand washing, good hygiene, social distancing, um, you know, maintaining a health respect for that, not touching your face, which I've touched my face several times throughout this program. Um, you know, if you can do those things, a heightened awareness out of it, then hopefully we'll see some bump in, in, in survival regarding influenza and other common ailments. Yeah, and hopefully people will remember that uh, obesity isn't something that could cause you yeah. trouble years down the road, but it's something yeah. that, depending on what happens in the immediate yeah. environment, could cause you problems a whole lot sooner. Lose weight, folks. Yeah, a whole Lose lot sooner than that. For sure. I also wanted to thank everyone who was pointing out that Kevin appears to have the same outfit as somebody who has a red vest in Star Trek. So it is actually completely <laughs> remarkable that he made it to the end of the movie. We just, that's never, it would never, the alien tentacle is supposed to yank him off the screen way before this. So, well, thanks everyone for, um, I guess, you know, people aren't I'll even going to watch this. They're just going to watch the chat replay because it was actually pretty funny. But uh, yeah, thanks, uh, Dr. Wakasi. Really, really appreciate it. Could you just give people your vital statistics on the web to make sure they can get a hold of your excellent material? Sure. I have a blog, healthcareonomics.com. It's healthcareonomics.com. The link will be below, I'm sure. I've written a couple of books. The Guide to Buying Health Insurance and Healthcare is the first one. It helps you save money on health insurance and healthcare. You can also look at my second book. It is called Healthcare Onomics, the A Thousand Crazy Ways the American Health Insurance Industry is Taking Over American Healthcare. I have an app that we're just revising. It should be released this week once Apple approves it. We're going to get the uh, Android version out. It's called Dr. W's Equation. It'll help you save money on your health insurance plans. And uh, of course, I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Parlay or Parler. And I'm on Gab. Uh, you can look me up under Healthcareonomics on all of those. And I have a YouTube channel, Healthcareonomics, as well. We'll put links to those below. And uh, I can of course, completely guarantee based upon the content of this conversation that Dr. Wakesi's app will be entirely virus-free. All right. Thanks so much, man. <laughs> really, really appreciate it. We'll talk again Thank soon. You, sir. Have yourself a great evening. Take care. You bet. Stay safe.